Welcome to the Ohio Humanities Podcast, where we engage real issues in real conversations with scholars and experts from across the state. In this series, Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters, we explore the topic of civic and electoral participation, using history and jurisprudence to illuminate contemporary issues. This is Ron Bryant. I am your host of Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters. Welcome to Perfecting Democracy, Civic and Electoral Participation, Why It Matters. This series of podcasts explores voting rights in Ohio. The 2020 general election is upon us, and we'll be examining the history of voting in Ohio in some instances and the voting process in others. Citizens can vote in person early via snail mail, as I call it, uh, as an absentee ballot in virtual voting for elections will be coming soon, along with, of course, in-person voting right now. So we're going to be welcoming our resident scholar in just a moment, but I just want to tell you a little bit about her. When it comes to political commentary, the commentator must have keen insight into the nuances of the political landscape. Understanding political subject matter is very much necessary for the commentator, and being an educator goes a long way toward unflinching accuracy and acumen. Dr. Latrice Washington is a tenured scientist, political scientist that is, and associate professor and department head at the political science uh, department with Audubon College in Westerville, Ohio. Dr. Washington also provides new media and networks with the type of annotation and comment needed to explain the various criticalities of the political strata. Add her durable connectivity to the commonalities of the electoral process. This allows her to deliver very concise political analytics. Dr. Washington received her PhD from Howard University, focusing on the American legislative and electoral process while concentrating on American foreign policy and the Constitution. Her 2014 publication, Political Scandals, The Consequences of Temporary Gratification, brought her critical acclaim for the content and ramifications considered in this particular piece. Presenting our scholar for this broadcast, Dr. Latrice Washington, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Ron. How are you doing? Doing very well today, and I want to thank you for uh, allowing us some time to discuss the political process and what's going on here with Ohio Humanities. Let's just get started. Okay. There's widespread belief that the Electoral College was created because the founders did not trust the American masses. That was back then, 1778 or whatever. What is the Electoral College in brief and how did it begin? And what were the founders' motivations for the Electoral College? Okay, so there are a couple of questions, so I'm going to try to deal with them um, individually. So as it pertains to what is the Electoral College, it is a body of electors. It was established in the Constitution, ratified in 1787, and essentially gives elect the electoral votes for each state to the individual disproportionately who has won the popular vote. It was intended to be indirect. We have to remember in terms of the framers, they were very concerned about like a central government. They wanted to preserve states' rights and um, essentially felt that it was necessary because the Articles of Confederation wasn't 
a tight enough bind or bond between the colonies. And so that's what they ultimately came up with was we need a central government, but they didn't want a super strong one. Okay, so that's the first thing that people have to keep in mind. When we read the Constitution, constitutional scholars argue that if you read it in the order that it is printed, it gives you some insight into their mind, which means the president wasn't first and foremost in their mind. He was not supposed to become um, like the key primary figurehead. He was to be a check on Congress, Congress on him. But you have to remember the history of the colonists having had a really horrible relationship with King of Great Britain, which they termed in the Declaration of Independence, a a tyrannical king, a despot, right? So they're not going to create a system that would put them in a position to relive what they were trying to escape. So that's the first thing that people have to understand. This mindset that we have of um, the president being like the be-all, end-all, that was not what they had in mind. And so when we read the actual document, which rarely do people read the United States Constitution, sometimes we're forced to in academic settings. But just to constantly go back and say, what does it say? What does it allow? Now, in practice, what happens is we've had presidents, because we're talking disproportionately presidential election, that have kind of out of necessity, at least that's the argument that they've made because of the nature of the presidency and the scope of the position and the responsibilities, oh, I now have to um, engage in greater diplomatic endeavors. I need to deploy um, the military, right? Not declaring a war because that's Congress, but But they can do all these other things. And so what, what happens is people forget the context, right? They forget the history and context is everything right? That gives you a sense of what was the foundation? What was the intent? The other thing I want to make sure people are clear of, there is a Democratic slate and a Republican slate for each state. Those individuals are elected, but they're elected as a full ticket. So individuals who are not loyal Republicans, loyal Democrats who don't vote in primary elections, don't stand a chance of even having a sense as to who these individuals are. They are names we would never recognize. They're not like the figureheads that we're familiar with. And so those individuals will have the responsibility after the ballots are calculated to determine and to certify who gets those electoral votes. It is a winner-take-all system. So we're not talking, oh, you got 56%. So you get 56% of the electoral votes for that particular state. Um, another question that you had, so um, started 18, 1787, I've given the definition. Um, people have to remember there are 538 electoral votes up for grabs. Yes. To win the presidency, the individual needs to get 270. It's who gets to 270 first. first. Very interesting. Some people often wonder, did slavery factor into the development of the Electoral College, even though slavery was afterwards? What, what, what was that mindset? You got to remember, this is a group of elites who came together 
and drafted a document. And they were really trying to create something disproportionately ironclad to try to think through every possible scenario of what could happen to make sure that there was a go-to plan for that. So no, slavery wasn't a consideration. They wouldn't have been thinking about enslaved people voting. Or indentured servitude. Indentured servitude, they wouldn't have had the, the right to vote either. They would have had to have paid off their debt and then be free. Free men, yes. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, 1824, mm-hmm. 1876, mm-hmm. 1888, 2000, mm-hmm. 2016, presidential nominees who lost the popular vote ultimately won the election. How does the Electoral College allow a nominee to lose the popular vote yet still win the election? Now, you alluded to that, but can you expand upon that? Sure. So um, classic example is to think about that, that 538 electoral votes, right, that are up for grabs. And so each state, based on its population, which then gives you the sense of their number of representatives in the House, and the number of senators. That gives you the number of electors per state. Now, that's why the census is important as well, and reapportionment. So when we keep that little piece in mind. So ultimately, it is possible for a candidate to run for president when the larger states lose the smaller states, get to 271st, and win, having not won nationally the popular vote right, right. in general. So how does the electoral college system compare to other election systems around the world, around the globe, like in the UK right now, Canada possibly? Right. A lot, I mean, everyone likes this idea of direct, um, directly voting. Even in this, in this country, I hear a lot of people, oh, we should directly vote for the president. Okay, well... Mm-hmm. There's some, there's some issues. The, the one side that many people don't like is this idea that the framers had that the masses couldn't understand like the depth and the breadth, breadth of what a decision like voting entails. Not that they couldn't get a ballot and vote, but thinking through if I make this move with the president and this is the move with Congress, what then become the opportunities or the options. Politics is a game of chess. It's not checkers, right? So you're constantly having to think, if I move this way, how will opponents move or shift? So when you understand that, they had a very heightened sense of understanding because they were extremely educated, obviously economically, they were strong, um, and they wanted to preserve that. So when you consider that piece, first and foremost, um, that's the key mindset that we have to have. No, they were not thinking about black people. They were not thinking about white women. They weren't thinking about poor individuals who were male, who would have met the age requirement, but didn't own land. That's how elitist they were. And, And what happens is we like to fast forward to 2020 without bringing that context to the table. That context makes all the, so no, they didn't think that many of us could understand it. Perhaps for some people who had like Trump regret, um, and they're always regretters, there were Obama regretters, the level of being informed and knowledgeable about the individual, what the office is, what can be done, what the constitution sanctions and what it doesn't, that requires 
really a certain level of sophistication that they just didn't think the masses um, were capable of, sometimes because of aptitude. Um, currently, our day and time, it would be the amount of time and energy that it actually takes that one has to commit to it. And that means disproportionately not, not plugging in and plugging out plugging in and disconnecting, right? Because there are voids often in terms of our understanding of what has happened. People like this idea of the popular vote, but we're also a microwave generation society. They want to know on election night, if you shift to direct, it's going to take a, a lot of time to try to ensure um, even more so than we do with the electoral college in place. How do we know that all the ballots have been counted? How do we know that this is the will of the people? Right. Um, and so even with that, that becomes an issue. Yes, there are other countries that utilize a, a direct form. They struggle with different issues. So no matter the form, there will be issues. And disproportionately in our country, when we've tried to make voting in terms of laws more inclusive, the degree of participation has not not followed. It's not caught up with it. It's not caught up with the fact that essentially mm -hmm. you can go into any government building, you know, like every library, the BMV, you can go online. We've made it ex exceptionally easy um, in some ways. And the fact is we are now at a stage where people interpret what was a hard fought right that was secured, constitutional right that had to be secured through like the blood of the slaughtered. Now people say it's a right to vote or to not vote, where there's sometimes not a sense of civic duty or responsibility to be a part of community, um, society, to help determine which direction the nation goes into. So that becomes like kind of like the tension. We're in a 24-hour news cycle, you know, multiple networks broadcasting their different flavor. Some talk about a contested election. Has there ever been a tie or has there ever been a contested election? And what systems are in place to resolve those disputes? Because we know that right now there's discussion about the Supreme Court. Okay, so um, I think I know where, you, where you're getting ready to go with that piece. I'm going I'm to deal with the first portion. Yes, there has been a contested election. I think the older millennials would possibly remember it vaguely. Gen Z probably has no recollection. Those of us that are a bit older <laughs> will remember Bush v. Gore. Yes. Okay. Pregnant Chad, Dimple Chad. What was the what was the voter trying to do? Hanging Chads. Hanging Chads. All around this issue of the mechanism, right? And how well voters knew how to use the ballot. Um, fast forward, we now have gotten most of us in terms of states have moved to some form of electronic using a lot more technology that raises some red flags as well but disproportionately in a moment you can kind of be done and you get to check your ballot before you print it and now go over to scan it into the system so hopefully people are making fewer errors that way but We've seen it before. Yes, the Supreme Court was involved. Um, Gore, Gore's campaign took the, the case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said stare deceases. The reason they said stare deceases was because on the state level in terms of Florida, Florida had already decided that case, which was user error or the lack of being informed and knowledgeable about how to utilize whatever mechanism is the responsibility of the voter. So they kicked it back. 
And here's why. And most people don't understand this. Voting and how elections take place is a state issue. Yes. It's not a federal issue. Teach. So he had the wrong court. <laughs> but of course, it was on appeal, right? So the idea is, okay, maybe we get rescued. Um, the argument that was made about that portion of history was the case likely did hinge to some degree on the 14th Amendment, but that was not the argument that the Gore campaign put before the court. Had that been the case, the court may have heard it. The court may have made a different decision, but their argument was about the mechanism. The mechanism is controlled by the state, which means it's outside of the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court to get into that political thicket. The case was already decided um, at the the lower trial court level and intermediate appellate court level. So basically the Supreme Court said they got it right. And Bush became (laughs) president. Now, let me say this, because part of the other question was, um, like, what happens if it's contested? What happens if there's not a smooth transition, I think is what you were alluding to. The only date that we see concretely in the Constitution is the end date for a president's term, January 20th. So what that typically means is you have the possibility for litigation. And after litigation, or even in the midst of it, as they approach that timeline, Congress, the House and the Senate, (laughs) have the constitutional right to then deal with that contested election and declare a victor. The House has the power to determine who the president would be, the Senate, the vice president. That's also why those elections matter, too. (laughs) Interesting. So very interesting. You know, a lot of uh, Americans have long called for presidential elections to be determined by popular vote. Mm -hmm. Now, some Americans have avoided the polls because they believe that their vote doesn't count. That's unfortunate. In 2016, just 56 percent of eligible voters voted in the United States. Some have argued that the Electoral College system discourages participation. Has the Electoral College had a discernible impact on contemporary and historical voter turnout. Okay, so how do I want to address this? The electoral, when we consider that the electoral college is only a factor in presidential elections, some can argue it's a deterrent because people say, oh, well, if my vote doesn't count, if I'm not directly electing the person, what's the point? The point is most um, constitutions for the states in the United States have a provision about how that electoral college would work in their state. So simply saying, oh, there's this electoral college, my vote doesn't matter, choosing not to because of this indirect format, simply gives somebody else the power to make a decision for you. Yeah. Mm. It's not nice. It's not friendly. Um, It's not clean. It's not clean. It's not pretty. But we have to understand that. So the Electoral College is only a factor in presidential elections. So here's where I kind of take this this question and thinking about it. So what explains the lack of participation in other elections? Yes. We have statewide elections. We have local elections. You know, we know as you you move closer to home, right, 
more closely yeah. to your own locality, right. the level of participation diminishes. So that can't be the real reason, right? That can't be the complete reason. That might be a deterrent for voting for president. But the president and the vice president are only two individuals, the number of candidates that are on the ballot. There's a whole ballot. There's an entire ballot. Down party ticket. You know, we know Republicans tend to do it. A lot of Democrats have said that's what they're going to do. They don't have to be in love with their candidate to the degree that they can't acknowledge that there might be some weaknesses. I think Democrats tend to do that a lot more um, openly than Republicans do. That's why the the primary system tends to be very divisive, um, combative. And partisan. Oh, absolutely. But you also have to remember the number of people who are kind of playing it from the middle, not loyal to either of the two dominant parties, is growing, right? So that disdain has nothing to do with the Electoral College. That has to do with how the game is played. That has to do with the options. Those are some of those, those kind of factors. So now what I will say, because um, you had had this question about the kind of like discernible impact on contemporaries. So I, I would say that's pretty much where that would be is in the psyche, right? The misinformation, the lack of understanding, um, the limited knowledge that people have about how systems work and how our republic is supposed to work. We are a republic, an indirect democracy, but everyone wants to vote directly on everything. That's not what we settled, they settled on. They didn't settle on a direct democracy. You know, like the model in Athens and Greece that people love, but not everybody in those, envir- in those settings actually voted. Okay. So, so that's one of those kind of, yeah. I did, and then you would be voting on everything, right? Yes. And so we think direct is what we want, but that means... For those who are frustrated or ballot fatigue every four years, could you really handle every time there was a need to make a decision that everybody is asked to come together and vote? So is there a plausible argument to change to a direct popular vote to impact the elections uh, at the presidential level, that is, and, and transform how candidates run their campaigns? Because, of course, we know it's going to take an amendment, but what are those thoughts? Elaborate a little bit more on what, what you said is your segue into the question, because I want to make sure my mind is, is I'm thinking what you're thinking when you're saying. <laughs> well, you know, we're just, you know, a lot of people say we just need to have a popular vote. So is there a plausible argument to get to that from a constitutional standpoint and understanding we would have to have a, a radical amendment to change to a direct popular vote to impact the presidential elections and the election of a president. So first you need a United States constitutional amendment. Yes. And then all of the state constitutions need to be amended. They need to all the states or ratification of that. No. Well, ratification, but you still would need to go back in and add that in writing if you wanted to make sure it would be heavily enforced federally and statewide. Correct. It's in the United States Constitution, but every state has it in its constitution. It could create a conflict, right? Tenth Amendment versus, you know, supreme law of the land. So that's something that people have to consider. But again, we are a republic. A republic means you have decision makers one to two levels removed from the people. Hence, separation. You mean branches of government? Of course. Um, 
Yes, but it's, it's more about federalism. See, that's the piece that most people forget in our republic. They also put federalism in, so you have separation of powers, checks and balances, and then you have that working on various levels of government. That is not talked about much. We don't talk about that much. I've heard that mentioned maybe three or four times, not including today. So, yeah. Yeah, when I mentioned it to my students, they go, (laughs) But most of us know federalism when we see it to the degree that um, if we drive various highways um, and hit certain roads, you see different speed limits. Um, Also to the degree that we receive federal grant money right? So when money is coming to the, to the states, like a lot of the schools currently having to be in the buildings because they otherwise would not get the federal resources, financial resources, that's federalism. Teaching us. That's so why levels of government as well as branches of government. We're winding down. This has been an interesting conversation. It's been 55 years since uh, the passing of the Voter Rights Act. Some of the Electoral College's opponents argue that it enables voter suppression, while its supporters argue that the system encourages minority participation. How has the Electoral College system influenced voting rights historically, particularly as it pertains to minority groups, people of color? Let's just let's first deal with voting since we've defined the Electoral College. Voting was denied to blacks, individuals of African descent until 1870. The black vote then continued to be suppressed even after the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment. So, um, and we're familiar with what we saw even in terms of like the late 60s, early 70s with the resistance to what the laws actually said about voting as well as desegregation. What we have to keep in mind is the Electoral College did nothing to create that situation. That was about a history of race, racism, um, the enslavement of individuals from the continent of Africa for financial gain. And that original sin of the country is what set up this kind of struggle, especially with the sociological construct of race, black, white. Ethnicity is really the real conversation when we want to understand cultures and understand people's differences. But someone decided, let's look at people based on the hue of their skin color, and we're going to call some white, and we're going to call some black, right? And black had the negative connotation. Historically, wherever the laws through litigation were put in place to try to eradicate laws that were put in place that represented the mindset of white supremacy in this country. You still had to deal with the mindset of white supremacy in this country. And so as much as we litigate, as much as we get policies on paper, um, as much as we get new laws, as much as there is the um, intentional effort to expand for inclusion, we can try to police it. But what we can't force is for people to abide by it. So the idea was you needed this kind of experience that immersed you in a culture other than your own, which is why they did busing, right? Black kids went to a white school, white school, white kids went to a black school. Why? If you get the young people together, hopefully they see that the same things they want, that's what the individuals who look different or who are different than them want as well. So what is on the surface 
shouldn't be the be-all, end-all, the kind of defining factor. So when we talk about voter suppression, it's not, this, it's not the electoral college that effectively does that with the exception of people who have it in their mind that the electoral college is somehow stealing something from them. The problem is the mindset of Americans and disproportionately certain members of the dominant culture who are still heavily rooted in white supremacy, in racism, and the privilege that comes with that. And so when we deal with that, and that's the way they want it to remain because it's beneficial to them. To them, say it. That's where we see far more efforts to suppress the vote. What did it look like in the past? The burning of a cross in your yard, right? And not just for voting, right? To send a message. Be fearful. Um, Live in fear. Don't try to get the right to vote. Don't try to go and vote. Um, Now, what does it look like? Um, People will do these robocalls or, you know, these scam calls and say, oh, if you have warrants, if you owe debt, if you are... um, an immigrant and you're not naturalized yet. You, you see where I'm going? Yeah. All of these various things are going to happen to you. Stay in your place. If you're naturalized, if you're a citizen and you have the right to vote and you register, explain to me how, how much money you owe has anything. But they're playing on the ignorance of the people. And I think earlier we didn't address this, but in that kind of 56%, there was a question you had posed possibly as a, a, a discussion piece. Who tends to sit out elections? Yeah. Right. The population that disproportionately experiences voter suppression when they do try to show up. And the reason that voter suppression often is successful is because these are also demographics that aren't engaged enough to sometimes overcome the fear or go, wait a minute, that's dumb. That doesn't even make sense, right? Hang up the phone. I'm not responding to that call. And um, I'm trying, I can't remember what state, Cuyahoga County, I believe in Cleveland, two gentlemen have been arrested for fraudulent voter suppression behavior. And I think it might have been like 7,000, 70, somewhere 770,000 phone calls where this recording played for people right. to encourage them not to vote because, you know, you're going to get arrested, this, that, and, and the other. So when we're looking at working class, working poor, poor, racial minorities, the less educated, that tends to be where we see more greater efforts to engage in targeted voter suppression. And the rationale makes sense. These are all demographics that the system doesn't work well for. So if they were fully empowered, if they were well informed, they likely want something other than the status quo. So those who represent the status quo don't benefit from them actually showing up. Hence, let's find ways to suppress their vote to minimize the opportunity that when they cast it, if they're informed, their voting block represents a vote for change. That's change a whole other conversation. Right. A whole other conversation. You're tuned into Perfecting Democracy, Civic and Electoral Participation, and Why It Matters. We're winding down with Dr. Latrice Washington with Otterbein College. She's a political scientist and commentator on MSNBC and several other networks, including locally here in Columbus, Ohio. Just to finalize, What we're talking about in terms of the Electoral College, does the United States still need an Electoral College? That's a conversation that a lot of people are having. Has the system outlived its utility? I will say, considering that we are a republic, that the intention was that the president of the United States would be a check disproportionately on Congress, I would say 
No, it hasn't outlived its utility. To the degree that American citizens, and I speak of citizens because those are the individuals that have the opportunity to vote, and that vote tends to translate into policy outputs that either kind of keep with the flow of what has traditionally happened and promote the status quo, or is in opposition and produces something different. When we consider those things, I'll say, okay, possibly, just because of the demand of the people. The will of the people needs to be an informed expression of their desire. And so then people need to understand what that then will entail. It's possible to vote for a president, let's say take away the electoral vote and electoral college and do a direct vote. Some people don't know how to use the ballots. Some people don't read up beforehand. I can tell you one thing I am well aware that has been happening with, um, I'll just take Franklin County. The Republican Party has, it. you know, each party has their list of endorsed candidates. The slate. And the Democrats clearly have Democratic Party candidates. Endorsed. Mm -hmm. To be clear, the Republicans don't have Republican on theirs. Theirs is blue and white. If you're ill-informed, if you don't want vote regularly, if you're not already a, a Democrat that was consistently, you wouldn't have noticed the difference. I had people who were in line, like, texting me, uh, have you seen this? Like, uh, what is this? And I'm just like, and I'm looking at the names and I'm like, those are Republican candidates. But if you don't know, each party has individuals out in the parking lot passing out their slate. You can vote for candidates of a particular party that is not the social program leaning or the economic stance that you want simply by, oh, give me, yeah, I'll take that. That'll make it easier for me. The framers never intended for this to be easy. That's why it takes a lot to change the system. And so in order for us to really be ready to get rid of the electoral college as opposed to maybe a proportional representation kind of form, you get 60% of the vote, you get 60% of those electoral votes for that state. People want to move all the way to the opposite end. The demand, the onus, the responsibility will even more heavily be on the citizen to know what they're doing. Because we still could be in a situation where people feel like they're stuck for four years with a president that they did not want. And the problem could be some people unintentionally voted for someone. And so we could still have the same types of situations. Or outcomes. Yeah. And people want to blame the Electoral College purely for the outcome. But if we have another system in place, if we are even able to maintain like the will of the people long enough. We need some alternatives on the table that are viable alternatives. That's fuel for another conversation at another time. We want to thank you, Dr. Latrice Washington, for being with us. You've been in tune to Perfecting Democracy, Civic and Electoral Participation, Why It Matters with Ohio Humanities. One final question as we take it home. What is the one key thing that you teach and tell your students for their understanding of the system as it relates to the presidential election and the Electoral College? I actually tell my students, think about your political socialization. Was it your family? Was it schools? Was it the church? Was it your religious leanings? Where did you get these ideas about what's appropriate, what's acceptable, what's not politically? Then I tell my students, okay, mom my daddy teacher said that what do you think remember my students if they're 18 to 24 what a baby boomer what my generation may want may not be the best thing for them in terms of trajectory of the future they're trying to get to so assess for yourself periodically there's several ideological kind of like quizzes 
do a check. See if you're still where you used to be. Life changes, the climate changes, experience change. So sometimes how we view certain policies change. Sometimes our political desires change. After you've done that, research the candidates. Choose the candidate that best suits what you would like to accomplish. Don't force fit yourself into a candidate. Yes, your views. And then finally understand no one candidate is going to be able to be everything to everyone. It's impossible even outside of politics. So once we understand that, you're trying to assess where can I get the most for my vote? Where would I get the best representation that is more likely to produce the output or the outcome, the policy, the laws that I want? cast your ballot that way. And then there's this tension that many of us struggle with as we mature, which is, do I vote purely on what is best for me? Do I vote based on what's best for the community or communities I'm a member of? Do I vote for communities that sometimes won't be present to vote for themselves, right? So there are multiple ways that we vote, but to be intentional, to be very thoughtful, and last and least, have your list before you go for early voting or you go on election day, it saves time. It keeps the line moving. It avoids confusion. You don't need anyone's information because you already know who your candidates are that you want to vote for. And last, I said last but not least, but this last one came to mind. I always tell them, finish the ballot. Voter fatigue is real. But as you move down that ballot, you have judges that are also seeking election. And so people have to finish the ballot. The easiest way to do it and avoid fatigue is to go preloaded with your information, having planned it, and then simply execute it and wait to see what others have done and see what the majority has to say. The majority that participated in the election, that's the majority rule that we're going to talk about after the election is over. Not 370 million people because 370 million people aren't going to vote. Hopefully we'll see more than, I think 2016 was 135 million, 136 million. Perhaps we'll pass that. Perhaps we won't. So it's the majority, the numerical majority of those who participate that make the determination about what policies we will receive and what policies we won't. Well, we're going to let that be the last word. It's your vote. It's your voice. Perfecting democracy, that's what it's all about. Civic and electoral participation. It does matter. Dr. Washington, thank you for being thank with you. us today. And we really appreciate it. Thank you. Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters has been made possible by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which is being administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Ohio Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. To hear additional stories in this series, visit www.ohiohumanities.org.